This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Okay, welcome. Welcome, welcome everyone to this talk with Mike Davis. Uh, It's exciting to see people joining from all over the country, (laughs) I guess around the world really, Um, and it's exciting to have this chance to hear and engage with Mike. Uh, I'm Andy Shaw, and I'm an editor with Verso Books, and tonight's Talk with Mike is co-sponsored by Verso and by Haymarket Books. Uh, Verso and Haymarket were longtime comrades as independent radical publishers in the United States. Uh, We are also both publishers of Mike Davis. All right, let me say just a couple uh, words about Mike. Um, I imagine a lot of folks who are tuning in uh, know about his writing, but some might be new uh, to Mike's work. Uh, He is one of the great. Uh, left historians and political and cultural analysts that we're lucky to have. He's written some, written and edited some 20 books across a wide array of topics. Although I think it's probably fair to say there are a couple of main threads in his work. One is, and he will be joining us from San Diego, a focus on Southern California. So in books like uh, uh, Ecology of Fear, City of Quartz. Um, he has analyzed the history of Southern California, of Los Angeles, of San Diego. And uh, I bring this up partly because Mike has a new book coming out. Uh, it drops in just two weeks, right into the middle of this crisis. But he's been working on it for years and years. It's a book called Set the Night on Fire, LA in the 60s. And it's a big magisterial history of LA's radical 1960s, the black and brown movements that propelled the city forward during those years, which he co-wrote with the longtime Los Angeles historian John Wiener. Fantastic book. Uh, It's available for pre-order. There are links to that below as well. Uh, So check that out. Another main thread of Mike's uh, career as a thinker and activist is the global effects of globalization of our era of globalization, capitalist globalization, some of the contradictions and complexities that have evolved because of that, including disease and the relationship of emergent diseases, pandemics, and so forth with the spread development of global capitalism. So there's nobody, it seems to me, better positioned to analyze our current moment than Mike Davis. And I think what we're going to do uh, in the upcoming hour uh, is going to be outlined more or less like this. Mike is going to lead us through some of the ways he sees uh, the politics of this pandemic. Um, He's going to talk for about 30 minutes or so, uh, setting out a a, a series of issues. And then I'm going to try to um, collate a bunch of the questions that you guys send in and put them to Mike for the second half hour. We have a little bit more time than that, but but I want to be mindful of uh, uh, you know t- Mike's time and energy, and uh, we'll be 
movie to wrap up after about 60 minutes. So uh, without further ado, Mike Davis. Hi, Andy. I have to apologize at the beginning. I have a coronavirus, the one that causes the common cold. So uh, I may be coughing and uh, blowing my nose through this <clears throat> interview. Thanks. <clears throat> Ready to go. So, I mean, maybe we should just start um, very basically uh, with you, you know, describing just a little bit uh, this coronavirus. Um, how does it differ from influenza's? Um, you know, how do you see this new, uh, what is to most folks surprising, I guess, emergent disease? Um, how do you place this in a longer history? Well, in the late 20th century, uh, up, up to 2003, in fact, uh, coronaviruses were mainly of interest to veterinary medicine because they caused uh, devastating epidemics, particularly amongst young animals. Uh, coronaviruses uh, uh, responsible for a lot of economic damage uh, in the pork industry, but they also affect uh, cattle. Now, it was well known that there were two coronaviruses, including the one I have, uh, which cause mild colds. But there is no research in sign of urgency to understand more than that. And then in 2003, suddenly uh, in southern China and Hong Kong, a new disease emerged. Now, this was against the background of a small avian flu outbreak. So it was attributed to avian flu. And in the beginning, it seemed to spread at the speed of light from one person, what is sometimes called a super spreader, uh, in a hotel, a sick scientist. And within 24 hours, it was already in five other countries. And it looked like it was about to become uh, the dread pandemic. But they soon realized that it probably wasn't an influenza. And so they began a search to find out exactly what this was that was causing this disease known as severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS. And it was discovered to, to be a coronavirus. Uh, uh, and this was totally unexpected. Coronaviruses are, are they're, I should just back up a little bit here. Viruses are basically parasitic genes. Uh, that have to figure out a way to break into your cells and then hijack um, your genetic protein-making machinery to make myriad copies of themselves and then figure out a way to get out of the, uh, the cell. Uh, there are two kinds of viruses. The one's based on DNA, and of course our genome is DNA, uh, have a proofreading mechanism so they replicate uh, accurate copies of themselves. But the viruses, the great majority of viruses, are based on RNA, which in our cells uh, read and translate instructions from the DNA to make uh, uh, proteins. But RNA viruses have no uh, spell check, as it were. And this means that they're constantly... Uh, making errors. They're also evolving, mutating. 
a million times faster than about anything else. Uh, scientists wrote recently that in a human cell, it would take 7 million years of evolution to produce uh, certain changes. And an RNA virus can occur in through four days. Okay, so this is a, a world where evolution is sped up a million times, where the viruses are basically Xeroxes uh, printing out error-ridden copies. But this gives a great advantage in facing the human immune system because there will always be some mutant, slightly changed variety of the virus that can resist the antibodies that uh, your immune system is producing. Uh, coronaviruses in particular uh, have the largest genome amongst uh, RNA viruses, uh, about twice the size of the uh, uh, genetic package of, of, say, an influenza. But to go back to the SARS epidemic, so this was frightening. And SARS initially was killing 30% of the people who got it. Eventually, about 2,000 people got it. And uh, this stimulated, of course, a crash program across the world, including the United States, to find antivirals, develop a vaccine, but above all, to understand how this thing worked, because it seemed to be so much different than the common cold. But the thing that really saved us in 2003 was the fact that SARS was only contagious when people were symptomatic. So you could really only spread it when you were displaying system, uh, symptoms, you know, coughing, fever, whatever. Uh, indifference to influenza, which can be spread asymptomatically, people who have it but don't uh, show any symptoms, pre-symptomatic by people who are still in the incubation stage. And this gives uh, influenza uh, wings to fly that coronavirus and the SARS form didn't. And so because of this trait of the virus, it was easier to suppress, though a lot of luck was involved. And within a year, stop thinking about it. it the last case, there's no more cases. Uh, research on a vaccine was given up, and we forgot about uh, SARS to return to the what was believed to be the chief enemy of humanity, which is an avian flu, uh, which would have the killing capacity and the universal dissemination of the Spanish flu in 1918-1919, greatest single mortality event in human history. But then in 2012, there was an outbreak of a new disease in Saudi Arabia, uh, this Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And it turns out this came, this was really the, the cursed Tutankhamun. I don't know if any of you remember the all those old mummy movies where, you know, if you go into the tomb, you you, you'll die, you'll get stricken and die of some dread disease. There's some truth in it. Because uh, diseases are carried by tomb bats, and MERS, as it was called, uh, was a tomb bat origin disease spread to camels and then spread uh, to humans. And it also turned out to be a coronavirus, similar in many respects 
to SARS. In the beginning, it had an even higher mortality rate, killed half the people who got it. But like SARS, once again, it was contagious only in the stage of the, when you were presenting uh, symptoms. But it did see a tremendous amount of research on coronaviruses and on the reservoir of coronavirus. Uh, and coronaviruses are not only uh, endemic to bats, but they exist in a, in a stunning array of subtypes and, and, and strains. Uh, one study of 100 bats showed, 100 different bat species showed that there may be 400 strains circulating out there that potentially jump to humans. And that was a study of 100 species. There's about 1,250 uh, bat species around the world. So the potential danger is incomparably greater than anyone imagined. But finally, what is distinctive uh, about the current virus, known as SARS-CoV-2, COVID's the disease, Mm -hmm. uh, that's the virus. Well, it closely resembles both SARS and the Mideast uh, coronavirus. The symptoms are similar. There's a lot of shared uh, genome. It's not as deadly as them by far. But on the other hand, it somehow has acquired the ability to spread uh, in the way that influenza does. It's incredibly infectious. So it possesses the trait that's the most scary aspect or characteristic of, of influenza. Let's stay just a briefly still on this sort of scientific level. Um, and since you've been studying all of these diseases, what's your sense of uh, what our scientific response can be to this? I mean, until a vaccine is developed, are there other options, malaria drugs, antivirals, TB injections, and so forth? Well, when our president endorsed chloroquine, a malaria medicine for this, and raved about how effective it would be, uh, the person in the United States died from it because one of promptly took some. But in Africa, it caused a huge panic. And uh, the shelves of chloroquine were emptied in a few days. There were actually riots. The police had to be uh, called in. I mean, it created real chaos by making this uh, misstatement. There are probably about 100 different research teams working on candidate antivirals, looking at uh, uh, drugs that have been developed for tuberculosis, for uh, uh, HIV. But right now, the only thing that seems to be immediately within reach is convalescent plasma. That is, somebody gets the disease, then they get well, you take the, the blood, you separate the blood cells and the plasma, and the plasma has the antibodies that have been produced. Uh, to counter the, uh, the infection. And this can be directly uh, transfused into people who have uh, been tested positive. Something called passive immunization. The idea has been around for more than 
century. And the scientific evidence on whether it works or not is confusing and equivocal. But there's a lot of enthusiasm right now, kind of desperate enthusiasm, that that might be the most effective uh, treatment uh, for people who are suffering from a severe critical case uh, of the infection. Interesting. Okay, let's switch gears a bit and move from science to the political response uh, globally. You wrote a recent nation piece contrasting the success of China's containment efforts, for example, um, to the shambolic mess in this country. Um, talk a little bit about your sense of the, the different responses nationally, globally to, to the crisis. What, what do you see as the high and low points politically uh, in, in, in the response? Well, China responded to the new virus in the same way uh, as SARS. In both cases, local officials muzzled the press, tried to cover up the cases, spread misinformation, and allowed it to become epidemic. But then the central government stepped in, and their uh, mobilization uh, was highly effective. Now, when Wuhan was quarantined, there was a window of maybe two weeks, which allowed the Chinese, uh, allowed Beijing to bring in doctors and nurses and experts from across China, concentrate them on Wuhan. China, because it's manufactured with so many pharmaceuticals and also so many protective medical supplies, had an ample stock of this. So the combination of being able to concentrate uh, an army of medical personnel and the fact that they had protective equipment and test kits proved to be decisive. The original mortality in Wuhan was about 5%. After the mobilization and, and learning uh, what was to be done, uh, other out, small outbreaks in China, mortality was under 1%. Now, I tried to argue in an article that people, particularly the authoritarian leaders of Western countries, uh, probably learning the wrong lessons from this. Their, their, their reading of it is that you need a semi-totalitarian surveillance society in order to suppress uh, such a pandemic. But I don't think putting a million Uyghurs in camps or surveying all the jaywalkers in China and change, reducing their social credit scores, then any of that had any real role uh, in the success of the Chinese efforts. What was so successful in China was, first of all, grassroots organization. There are 9.5 million members of the Communist Party organized down to the block level. So you had a grassroots uh, organization that was uh, uh, unequaled anywhere in the world. The medical care in China has always been a, a problem. There have been a lot of cutbacks. China's practice its own variety of neoliberalism. But still, it has a large uh, practicing community. 
but its medical research communities, of course, world class. Now, almost everything we know about coronavirus is coming out of Chinese research. And one of the things that Beijing did uh, when it took charge of this, and it done the same thing back in 2003, is encourage Chinese workers to share their research and findings across the world. There's been no uh, censorship of that. And, uh, even one Republican senator from Louisiana, who's a gastroenterologist, during the time when uh, Trump was raving against uh, this being a Chinese disease, the Chinese uh, got it out of control. He was praising, uh, you know, the Chinese uh, uh, literature. So, and and this is also the case in other uh, East Asian countries. South Korea had enough test kits. It tests. It was able to test anybody who suspected uh, they had it. That's the reason they didn't have to shut down so much of their economy. Taiwan, Taiwan had stockpiled enormous number of N95 masks. It had ventilators. It, it had this amazing pandemic uh, uh, stockpile, uh, which has been absolutely life-saving uh, in Taiwan. But the important thing is, first, that we don't learn the wrong lesson, that Authoritarian surveillance societies uh, are what allow us to fight diseases like this. But we must begin to think about how to develop our, our own model of uh, emergency response, a pandemic response, one that mobilizes popular courage, one that's based on grassroots organization to reinforce and aid medical workers, one that's based on universal coverage, one that has based on stockpiles, one in which the development of new vaccines and antivirals is undertaken by the public sector. Because actually, right now, there has been a revolution uh, in immunology and uh, in the development of uh, uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, this started with AIDS. AIDS was the turning point. And we're in an entirely different position scientifically than we were in the uh, uh, 1980s or 1990s. But for that matter, even five years ago. In other words, there's a scientific revolution going on uh, that raised the real possibility of creating universal vaccines against almost everything. But the laissez-faire neoliberal system of public medicine, public health in this country, has been a fetter on developing uh, this revolution and uh, enabling it to uh, save millions and millions of, uh, of lives. So there's no uh, bottleneck. There's no problem with the research. Potentialities are enormous. The problem is the politics of it, and the problem is the private ownership of uh, the key pharmaceutical industries. Right. There's no – you're pointing to the fact that the, the big pharma, which is basically our system of anticipating and responding to these pandemics, uh, is fundamentally uh, uninterested, actually, in universal solutions universal vaccines. Um, 
I mean, it's constitutionally uninterested in, in those solutions that would put it at, put itself out of business, for example. Well, yeah, I mean, imagine that uh, you're GM engineer and you develop a blueprint for a car that would never need to be repaired, would last a lifetime, and it could be made very cheaply. And so you're excited and you take it to the board of General Motors. Are they going to approve the development of a car that would put the annual style changes in all the different varieties of cars? Of course not. And that's been exactly the reaction of Big Pharma to universal vaccines. And the universal flu vaccine, uh, I think probably a majority of the people uh, uh, in the research community would agree it's entirely possible. It just has not had uh, the profit motive of big pharma line with it, and it have, hasn't had um, you know public spending behind it. Now the thing about big pharma, um, the eighteen companies, there are actually only five great ones, but eighteen companies that control ninety percent of development of pharmaceuticals. It's not simply that. They hike up prices and uh, exploit us through costly and sometimes far too costly to be available to poor people uh, drugs. But that what justifies their prices and their profit taking, what justifies their monopoly status, has been that they're the engine of research that develops new lifeline drugs. It's not true. Uh, they have totally abdicated development of uh, research and development for tropical diseases, of antivirals, and of antibiotics. I think most of the listeners here probably know that it's really dangerous to go in a hospital uh, in the last few years because there are staph and C. diff infections uh, running wild in the hospitals. And... Uh, 50,000 Americans a year are dying because of these uh, infections. So the great antibiotic revolution of the 1940s, early 1950s is being rolled back, and Big Pharma will not address that, will not develop the new antibiotics. So they fail this essential uh, test. They don't do what they claim their social justification is. At the same time, they're spend more on advertising than they do in R&D, uh, particularly things that are highly profitable drugs, like uh, sexual dysfunction in men my age. And, you know, this is a profit leader. And at the same time, they actually buy up small firms and suppress their uh, research. They don't want the competition of the products. Sometimes they buy up to get that new product or that new technology. But many times they'll buy them out uh, to take it off 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 the market. So they're actually suppressing uh, development of lifeline medicines. We could go on for a long time talking about this, but it's not just drug prices that have to be addressed. We really have to talk about breaking up uh, big pharma. We have to talk about the public production of. Uh, Prescription medicines, particularly lifeline medicines. Elizabeth Warren, of course, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, had a bill that would do just that. She talked about uh, public sector production of medicines. 
something that existed early in American history. It's absolutely necessary uh, proposal step that must be taken. Okay, so now you're moving to this area of how we, the left, how progressive movements can think about the response and organize for a response to this. So will you get a little bit more into that? Your sense of what a program can be, uh, what uh, your sense is of different countries' responses at this point, because there have been some you know, uh, encouraging responses from left governments and movements across the world. So, so lay out a kind of program for us of how you think we should be moving, you know, to, to think and organize and, and imagine, uh, a response. Well, I had an interview with Jacobin, uh, a week ago, and I made a distinction between two kinds of demands, uh, Rooseveltian demands which were dramatic reforms, but reforms that could coexist with uh, our existing economic system. And Debsian demands, which maybe didn't require socialism, uh, but challenged the logic of capital and private ownership. Now, Rooseveltian demands, uh, and when I say Rooseveltian, I'm talking about the the, the most farthest advanced position of the New Deal, which was the uh, second Bill of Rights, the socioeconomic Bill of Rights that uh, FDR made the platform of his uh, final campaign in 1944. Well, just go to our revolution or Bernie.com, whatever it is, and uh, you'll find not only excellent immediate demands about the pandemic, but the program that we're all familiar with that he's been fighting for uh, for so long. And obviously, uh, single payer universal health care is essential. But what would be a Debsian approach to this, if I might put it that way? Well, if you go back and look at the 1910 socialist platform, uh, we'd look at the current crisis. And we'd say, well, we have to socialize the production and development of of medicines on a basis of universal health care. We also need to look at the relationship of private corporations, banks and corporations to uh, uh, the current crisis. Take Amazon, for instance. Lots of companies are, are hurting. Thousands of small businesses may disappear forever. But Amazon, it's not simply that their volume is up and that they're making uh, extraordinary profits, but that the extinction of competitors, small competitors and, and franchises of uh, bigger companies, consolidate a market position that makes Amazon the biggest monopoly problem in world world history. The Debsian approach would say, well, we could use antitrust on this. And like Elizabeth Warren, who's crusaded for, uh, you know, we could 
tightly regulated, made, make it pay higher taxes. But the Debsian demand is saying, no, Amazon has become a fundamental infrastructure for the production of information and distribution of goods. It should become a public utility. 1910, socialists were fighting against the power companies, the private water companies, telephone companies, to socialize them and make them democratically controlled uh, and owned uh, public utilities. Well, I think Amazon uh, should be considered a public utility as well. I mean that in a very serious way. In the near term, if you go back to kind of Rooseveltian uh, demands, uh, I'm arguing a little article that's coming out in The Nation, that we should go back to excess profits tax in World War One, World War Two, uh, and again in the Korean War. There was an excess profit tax that capped the uh, profits at 7%, and anything above that had to be repaid to the government. They were poorly implemented, to be sure, but it was a pretty giant step to take. And FDR, actually in 1942, went a step further. He put his cap on incomes. Anything over $25,000 a year, 100% income tax. Okay. There was a ceiling on incomes. It only lasted about six months because obviously there's huge reaction by conservatives. But it was popular. People understood the logic of that as they did of excess profits tax. So we need to think that about this is something that we should urge Democrats and progressives need need to take a stand on uh, right now. These two issues of uh, public development of, of lifelong drugs, breaking up big big pharma, but in the meantime, doing what three Repu- uh, three Democratic presidents, Wilson, Roosevelt, and Truman did, let's have excess profits tax. Let's tax the people who are profiteering out of this crisis. Okay, um, I want to get back to this uh, question of demands, strategy, resistance, uh, and so forth. But uh, it's uh, about 6.40, um, halfway through this, and uh, we wanted this to be a real uh, back and forth with folks who are uh, tuning in. And we have gotten a lot of questions, really smart, uh, important questions from folks so I'm going to group a couple of these. Um, in some ways, it takes us back to some of the earlier uh, uh, points that you were hitting, but that's good because some people may have tuned in right halfway through. A couple of people have asked questions about the global rollout of this pandemic, um, both in terms of its impact and then the kinds of responses we're seeing to it. So, for example, Nick James asked, why and how has it reached Africa so late? Is that bizarre? What, what, what do you think of that? Um, another person asked an interesting question about uh, the pandemic's uh, impact on Mexico. You know, both AMLO's government and Trump's government took this not so seriously at first. Uh, but how is it rolling out there? Why is it rolling out in a different way? What's your analysis of the uh, you know, the progress of the pandemic, especially in the global south? Well, there's been a lot of nonsense uh, written or spoken uh, about Africa in particular. 
Now, Italy's a senile country with 22% of its population over 65. Africa, and particularly West Africa, is the youngest part of the human race. Uh, only 3% of the population are old. So we've heard a lot of stuff about it. Well, it won't have much impact in Africa because uh, people are so young and it's a hotter climate. Uh, this really is in some ways uh, uh, appalling. We need to uh, keep in mind from the start that, uh, well, as far as weather goes, uh, the 1918-1919 influenza became most deadly in August of 1918 at the height of, uh, uh, of summer on the idea that youth somehow is an exemption from the disease in the same way and we'll follow and the disease will follow the same pattern uh, as it has done in the United States or, or Western Europe <coughs> is is equally foolish <coughs> for this reason. Africa has 24 million sub-Saharan Africa has 24 million people with AIDS. There's millions of people with tuberculosis. 40% of Africans simply have no access to clean water or sanitation. So urging people to wash their hands with soap regularly uh, is impossible. 70% of urban Africans live in slums where social distancing is impossible. Uh, malnutrition, uh, civil wars. So by uh, let me make an analogy. In 1918, uh, the Spanish flu burnt through North America and Western Europe became a decisive factor on the Western Front because hundreds of thousands of soldiers got it. And that's usually the story that's told. Uh, there are many books out there about this event. But in fact, the greatest mortality, fully 60% of the people who died from that Spanish flu died in Western India. Why? because they were famished. British had forced exports of grain to Britain. It had confiscated crops to feed its Indian armies in the field. People were malnourished and their immune systems were suppressed. Some of them had just survived cholera. Uh, food prices were unaffordable for the poorest parts of the Indian population and 20 million people uh, died. So what's ignored in this is the, the risk of co-infection. What happens when you have HIV and you have AIDS? What happens when your immune system is suppressed by hunger? What happens um, when you don't have uh, sanitation? So it's an entirely different situation from China or the West <clears throat> where you have a relatively healthy populations with access uh, to medicine and African doctors and international organizations have been warning that Africa is a time bomb. Millions of people could die from Africa. It could also erase any advantage uh, that's conferred by uh, younger immune systems. But there's something else that, had, that needs to be considered. And that is the studies I talked about at the beginning, the uh, coronaviruses in animals and pigs and uh, 
horses and in cattle. What they discovered is that this same coronavirus has two modes of operation. It can spread uh, through your respiratory system to become a pulmonary illness, induced pneumonia, but it could also spread by the fecal oral route and present itself as a severe gastrointestinal um, disease. And the reason this research is significant is consistently in animals, they found that the gastrointestinal version was by far the more deadly. So there's some real chance that as coronavirus encounters uh, populations of people who lack sanitation and lack uh, potable water, that it could flip the switch. There are already a minority of cases uh, that present these symptoms. People who have diarrhea and nausea, um, um, for example, um, in Wuhan, it's been seen in the United States, but it's a small number. The possibility exists in Africa that can flip and it can become a very large number of people. I guess what I'm ultimately trying to say here is that, in fact, there are two humanities in an immunological sense already. Uh, the danger is that this uh, pandemic will widen and deepen the divide between those two humanities, those two kinds of human populations, uh, one with a lot of defenses against a pandemic and the other having bodies uh, that are extraordinarily fragile and, and vulnerable when confronted with a disease like this. Right. Um, a long time theme of yours, whether writing about uh, disease or um, other fundamental issues like climate change, who's actually vulnerable, um, who's on the front line of that. In fact, we got two or three questions about this. Again, this is really big, really fundamental, broad, global questions. Ken Cronenberg just very straightforwardly asks, what can you say about the link uh, between climate change and disease, pandemic and otherwise? Well, there's a huge literature out there uh, because climate change is totally redrawing the biogeography of the planet. And it's moving the vectors of tropical diseases like dengue fever uh, northward. Uh, you undoubtedly are, will see the return of malaria to Europe uh, in the next decade uh, or so. It's also, of course, evicting animals uh, from their traditional niches. And uh, animals are moving, trying desperately to uh, adjust to climate change. Uh, this probably raises the frequency of contact between humans and wild animals, which we have little, have ever, never had tried to domesticate or had contact with. Of course, the major force in breaking down the barriers between the wild and um, the urban has been logging, corporate logging across the world. This was part of the story of, of HIV, was part of the story of, of, of Ebola. This is why bats, which have been lurking in their caves for 
millennia uh, with their various myriad number of, of diseases. Now they're suddenly coming in contact with, with humans, where the animals they infect are coming in contact uh, uh, with humans. But climate change, in short, is a hugely powerful force for mixing up uh, environments, bodies, species, creating a whole new landscape for bacteria and viruses uh, to propagate, grow, and most of all, evolve into forms that we have no idea what, what we may be facing down the road, uh, unless we really use all the revolutionary tools that uh, bioscience uh, uh, now has. Yeah, um, you mentioned again of climate change, uh, politics around the world. There have been several questions that have drawn the connection between climate change and disease, but also between what had been a vibrant um, climate change uh, progressive movement with direct action being um, pioneered by groups like Sunrise Movement, Extinction Rebellion, and all of that. So there's a series of questions uh, about how do we um, uh, protest, uh, influence what's going on in this moment of lockdown. Chris Lowe asks, many of our usual methods for bringing pressure for demands aren't available under social distancing. So what are some innovative, expanded methods we can use? You've heard that people are using. Well, I've seen, uh, uh, is it today or yesterday, on, on television, uh, demonstrators outside an Amazon warehouse on strike, but observing social distancing. Uh, I don't see any case for totally abandoning the streets or protest in public spaces. Obviously, what's going on now is a challenge, uh, first of all, uh, to the uh, virtual skills of, of the new left. I'm totally mired in the old analog world of the 20th century. Um, but I spoke to you earlier and you regaled me with, with great stuff that's going on in the web. But we have to keep to the streets uh, as well, but do it in a demonstrably safe way so the accusation can't be made, well, you're endangering people. I mean, the Amazon picketers were out there because people are endangered by the fact that they have no protection people who handle, uh, you know, the goods, their conditions are unsafe. They'll get sick. Uh, it's a major public health risk. And uh, I'm not sure they could have gotten the same attention if they tried just to uh, write things and do protests on, you know, on, on the net. Uh, we have to cede some ground, uh, even where protest seems radical, uh, to, to the emergency. But as long as you keep social distance and otherwise obey, obey the rules, we just cannot leave the streets. I must interject on another point. There is a huge difference between climate change and pandemic uh, disease in terms of the interest of wealthy countries versus the poor, the wealthy classes versus the poor classes. With the pandemic, you can't entirely neglect a poor side of the city 
or these poor states, or even the poor countries, because what's incubated there uh, in conditions of substandard uh, medical care and uh, bad sanitation and so on is something that will come back and bite people in the Hamptons or Beverly Hills. This is a classic case in England, mid-Victorian England. This is what finally forced the middle classes uh, to engage in massive sanitary reform, uh, bringing clean water to London, because they were getting cholera too. Climate change doesn't work like that. Because of the separation of the societies that produced the greenhouse gas accumulations and the societies who most uh, disastrously feel its effects, there isn't the same kind of self-interest in uh, addressing poor countries, not at all. And uh, so much of our discussion about climate change has to do with mitigation, doing our share to uh, slow down and eventually stop the continuous buildup. It's a big question for the global south is adaptation. And the United States and other rich countries, just as they've long been uh, uh, failed to pay up their dues to the World Health Organization, have failed to finance, to meet their promises to finance a fund to provide uh, investment and relief to countries that are now sinking under oceans or faced with great floods and, uh, and so on. But climate change, because of this, is more challenging because there is no necessary capitalist self-interest in doing something about it. With pandemic disease, something has to be done. Uh, the world market is uh, virtually collapsed. Mm. Well, uh, however, when we look at the uh, governmental response to the pandemic here in the United States, but all across the world, it, you know, provides a textbook case of what Naomi Klein often calls disaster capitalism. There are all kinds of um, uh, opportunistic infections on top of this pandemic. So uh, not only do we, yeah, we have this huge corporate slush fund that was just created, for example, but also the way that governments, um, authoritarian governments across the world are uh using the COVID-19 crisis to further their political aims. I have a question, for example, uh, where someone asks, um, what about the way that uh, this pandemic is uh, impacting occupied territories like Kashmir and Palestine? Uh, someone else uh, wants you to address the way that the current authoritarian governments um, are using the pandemic to persecute minorities, increase environmental destruction. Again, opportunistic usage of this disaster. Of course. Uh, Gaza is right in the firing line now. And Gaza is, of course, a public health disaster because of the Israeli blockade. And uh, viewers should probably go to J Street, which has uh, some very important articles about Gaza. And the suspicion that that absolutely vital medical supplies like ventilators uh, are not being allowed into Gaza uh, in the same way that 
uh, in war zones and other cases. So Kashmir, as you mentioned, probably the same kind of thing uh, going on. But what we have here is is a new terrain of struggle uh, globally. So on one hand, uh, you have coalitions of capital with authoritarian governments trying to increase the already enormous powers of surveillance uh, and repression while simultaneously creating new accumulation strategies. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, you have our side, which wants to see a universal medical coverage and a democratic approach to how we fight diseases. And we, of course, are the, are the puny 90-pound weak link. And uh, the governmental corporate uh, 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 groups are the giants. But we have gained one thing inadvertently and perhaps surprisingly because of the crisis, is just like in the case of wars, it forces capitalist governments to introduce certain collectivist measures, even parts of traditional left-wing platforms. And so what happens when the war ends or the pandemic passes, then, of course, uh, capital and the state begin to claw claw back that American labor won some fundamental victories for its participation in the slaughter of World War I. And immediately after the war, uh, corporations launched a coordinated national offensive. That's why 1919 was the biggest strike here in American history. So what we need to do now is look very carefully at what aspects of the response uh, are beachheads in a way to uh, push the agenda of, of working class people uh, in this country while simultaneously uh, opposing uh, what's going on everywhere, which is, for instance, the uh, tapping into everybody's cell phone yeah. without court orders or anything. Uh, maybe the most extreme case of that is Israel, where Netanyahu uh, had turned Shin Bet, uh, Israeli FBI, into his principal pandemic response agency and actually tried to uh, uh, prevent votes in parliament. I mean, a lot of Israelis talk about it as a, a silent coup, but it's a model for what those kinds of regimes will attempt to make out of uh, this crisis. Okay, so in terms of establishing beachheads, um, there are a lot of folks uh, on the call who want to turn our our, our attention to, uh, you know, extremely vulnerable groups um, and what can we do about them. So, for example, prisoners. Um, this is a huge uh, potential conflagration across the country with the largest uh, prison population in the world. Um, there have been some halting attempts across the country to uh, get folks released. What do you think about that whole area? And another uh, being uh, immigrants in detention, undocumented migrants. Um, what, what, you know, these are two big areas, overlap somewhat, but not really. But your thoughts on both of uh, these areas, what's happening, what could be done? 
Well, viewers are absolutely concentrated on specific confined groups. 25% of people in this country who's died so far in the pandemic have died in nursing homes. And uh, this is probably only the tip of the iceberg because outbreaks are occurring in nursing homes across uh, uh, the country. Uh, I saw an article uh, this morning, I believe, that said that, uh, I forget which prison um, they were talking about, whether it was a, a state penal authority or federal prisons, but like only 7% of the minority who are being considered uh, for early release are African Americans. So what we might expect in prisons and jail is that white, white-collar criminals uh, will be sent back home. I think even Bernie Madoff is right now uh, uh, getting ready for his uh, early release, while people of color, victims of the war on drugs, are basically uh, in a Petri dish uh, waiting to be infected and waiting to die. Uh, it's the same thing for people in uh, being held in detention camps. Portugal did a wonderful thing the other day. Portugal is now governed by coalition of the left, largest party, the Socialist Party, but they're also parties of the far left in the coalition. And they gave citizens' rights to all their migrants, legal and uh, uh, undocumented, to all the refugees. If you're in Portugal right now, you will be treated the same as any Portuguese uh, uh, citizen. This should be a universal uh, demand. My wife's nephew and his wife work in the huge refugee camp on Lesbos, and uh, they've been reporting in uh, over the net uh, about their experiences there. Apparently, people are absolutely uh, desperate. Uh, they feel that they're just going to be sacrificed, uh, particularly now that the right wing is is back in government uh, in Greece. So everywhere we have to, first of all, ensure solidarity with frontline health workers. And secondly, do everything possible to draw attention to the people in restrooms, jails, prisons, um, detention camps, demanding uh, that everyone receive the same rights as any any other American citizen, regardless of, of their status. And here is where I think we have to go back into the streets, outside the prisons and jails, outside the detention camps, uh, six feet apart or 10 feet apart, whatever you, you, know, you want to do. So you're not violating social distancing. But this is of the highest urgency every, everywhere in the country. And I'm really glad that uh, my uh, good friend Ruthie Gilmore is soon going to be talking about this. That's right. Um, Ruthie and Naomi Mirakawa, that'll be a, a really good conversation. We have uh, several more questions about another area that you have you know, long uh, uh, written about and analyzed, and that's housing. Um, uh, you know, it's an emergency right now across the country for many people. Um, thrown out of work um, and dealing with the disease. 
What do you think about this area? Uh, what's going on? There are calls across the country for rent strikes. Um, what do you think of that? Um, what do, you, do you think there are programs that we can advocate for now in this moment around housing and, and, and as a central element of a program? Well, take the case of California. And California, and I'm not sure whether this is on a state level or a municipal level, but I know in Los Angeles, Partial relief has been given to renters, and some evictions have been stopped. And there are examples of this all across the country where some concessions have been made. And each of those concessions okay, is a little battlefield to fight to enlarge it, to uh, universalize it. The governor of California, Newsom, uh, has taken a step by starting to uh, buy motels and stuff for homeless people and and uh, use other facilities uh, for uh, emergency hospitals if needed. Now, Mark Nason, who's probably in Brooklyn too right now, I forget, Mark, whether you're from Brooklyn or, or, or the Bronx, suggested several years ago that we advocate for, first of all, a census of unused abandoned or simply uninhabited buildings and residences and municipalize them, at least for the duration of the crisis. There's an enormous amount of unused space, an enormous amount of homes or, or condos uh, uh, that have been simply bought for speculation. Downtown San Diego uh, has been in a condo building frenzy for, for years. Probably a quarter, 30% of them are unoccupied. They're just bought as investments uh, where they're occupied like summer homes only for a few months uh, a year. You should demand that they be used uh, for shelter. We demand that they be available for health workers. There's increasing numbers of doctors and nurses have to separate themselves from their families. Uh, a good friend of my wife's is a GP in Seattle. He had to move into Motel 6 to avoid transmitting disease to them. So we really need to look at this myriad of opportunities uh, to push for social use uh, you know, as the priority and, and to stop evictions, period. All right. Um I think we're going to we're heading into the last 15 minutes uh, of this talk with Mike Davis. Um, so uh, I'm going to try to group several more sets of questions. Lots of um, really thoughtful uh, comments and questions are coming in. A number of people also want to highlight the, you know, the enormous challenges being faced by disabled folks right now um, and how they factor into the politics of this or, or often don't get factored into the politics of this, get ignored. Do you have thoughts about that? Yes, and uh, the model here may be Ireland, a small capitalist country with great social inequality, but a uh, very rich tradition of, of protest and, and strong community organization. So what happened in Ireland was at the very beginning <clears throat> of um, after the first cases in Ireland, uh, somebody went on the net and began to call for creating a volunteer organization that would act 
to shop and check in on older people and disabled people. And I have the impression that probably it's a horrible situation out there for tens of thousands of disabled people who can't get out to shop, who are afraid of uh, calling for deliveries if they have the money, because we now know that we have to disinfect the mail. We have to disinfect the passages, uh, packages that arrive. That's what the Amazon strikers were trying to highlight uh, uh, the other day. But as far as I can see, on a federal level and probably in, on state level as well, there are no task force or concentrations of resources uh, to rescue people trapped in their homes for whatever reason, because they're disabled or sick. Like there's no national idea of what to do about the immense number of deaths that are almost certain to occur in restaurants and in prisons and places we've, you know, we've just uh, uh, talked about. And we should be, you know, screaming at the top of our lungs that these things need to be done. Uh, immediately. And uh, I'm sure that in the conversation that's occurring, it's just one way now, but I'm hoping all this is, is logged and people can uh, uh, talk to each other, that uh, progressive collectives and groups of people across the country uh, will make the, uh, the most vulnerable groups, uh, you know, the focus of the agitation. For sure. Okay, uh, just a couple more questions, and then uh, we'll let you go. A couple of folks um, are wondering what you think about uh, a guy named Lucas Amorim, for example, asks, um, how could this coronavirus pandemic cause an impact on the next election? Okay, so the ongoing election, the presidential race, the move into the convention or whatever is going to replace the convention and the fall election. Several questions about what you, what's your analysis of what's going on with that and how do we respond to that? Is there going to be a presidential election in November? Right. Or will our current president find the pandemic that continues a very good excuse to uh, uh, postpone it? I mean, that may seem an extreme scenario, uh, but we have to keep that in mind. No, I think right now what we need to be focused on is the Democratic Convention. Because, and I think the reason that Bernie Sanders is not pulled down his colors at all, but in fact is flying them higher than ever, uh, is because the platform committee at the Democratic Convention has to be uh, overwhelmed by voices demanding that. Medicare for all is on the platform. Okay. This is the greatest lesson in, in history, uh, a very dark lesson. But what could provide greater proof for the urgency of Medicare uh, you know, for all in this crisis? Now, conventions, uh, often the platforms are just uh, gestures to the defeated candidates and into different groups. Uh, they're never really that well honored in practice. This has to be different. I mean, if the Christian right could force Trump to turn over the writing of the Republican platform entirely to them, 
and they were given carte blanche to put where we mimic. The struggle now is not to oppose Biden directly, but to control the platform, to force these policies uh, that you expect uh, younger voters, voters of color, uh, to vote for you in November, then you have to advocate this. You have to abandon your positions and take over the crucial parts of the Sanders platform and, and parts of uh, Elizabeth Warren's platform as well. She was particularly outstanding because she's the first to bring up the question of a wealth tax that is addressing not only income inequality, but the uh, enormous wealth inequality that's the uh, you know the basis for it. So I think the political struggle, uh, in some ways, is is just begun. Now, the fact that the convention may become virtual, I have no idea what that means in terms of how you act effectively. But you have this huge block of, of, of Sanders voters and some warm voters, and they should not go gently into good light night. Uh, without uh, the fight to the, to the end over this. And I think there's a very good chance it's a fight that could be won. All right. Um, I'm just going to uh, throw one more question your way, and then I think we can wrap up. Um, it's just a very basic uh, question, but it strikes me as something that we're all thinking about. And, and um, it's uh, posed by Emre Ozietis, and it's simply... Um, can you talk a little bit about the fear that this uh, pandemic has caused and um, how do we deal with this frightening well, story? I mean, fear is directly proportional to your sense of impotence in a disaster or an emergency. If you're given a significant social role or responsibility, most people rise to the occasion. Here in California, where uh, you know, we've been worried from the beginning about the big one, you know, great earthquakes and so on. Uh, most people have been told, hoard toilet paper and wait to be drug out of the, uh, uh, the rubble by the professionals. The professionals will handle it. This is the way it's done in Japan uh, or in other countries. People have roles as volunteers. Uh, know where all the medical personnel are, anybody with useful skills, uh, construction uh, workers, or at least be assigned to go and make sure that that elderly woman's uh, gas is turned off. And the very essence of this shambolic uh, response that's being mounted in this country is that it's requiring everything of health workers, and undoubtedly many of them will die uh, uh, because of this. But at the same time, it's not giving those kind of volunteer roles that are so necessary and it proved effective uh, elsewhere. What we have is our resource against uh, uh, despair and fear, of course, is, is our activism. And I think the general response of the American left uh, has been extraordinary. We should be, you know, you know, very cheered by it, but we need to take it to the to the next level and focus on the vulnerable groups, 
focus on uh, continuing the fight for universal uh, coverage. Do I have two minutes left? Absolutely. Okay. Let's talk about uh, this pandemic in a world historical sense. I just read an article in a uh, journal uh, uh, by an Italian historian, and he argues that the plague epidemics of the 17th century, the 1600s in Europe, played a central role in the shift of power from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic countries. Italy was uh, the most um, affected. Uh, you know, it was a total disaster for Italy across the board. And so its preeminence in banking and trade wilted to the advantage of Holland and, and Great Britain. Is it possible that this pandemic is accelerating the decline of the United States and China's rise, not just as a military economic power, but to a kind of moral hegemony that it didn't possess before, because it's the major power right now uh, sending aid to poor countries and even to European countries. Cuba are the real heroes, as they always are in pandemics, but the, the real material aid comes from China. And I think we may be seeing such a, a transitional moment, a geopolitical um, um, turnover of, of power. It would have been taken a, a much different and slower course, but it's now been sped up by the pandemic. What about the role of Europe then? then? What is Europe right now? I mean, uh, when the Italians ask for help from their European sisters, and France and Austria just close the borders and ban the export or transfer of medical supplies to Italy. What is the European Union? And this, of course, mirrors the way that Europe handled the refugee crisis, which ended up being each, each country for itself. Uh, so I think we have to weigh the possibility that the, Europe, the idea of Europe, the EU idea, is dying right now. And, and Brexit, in a way, <clears throat> is only a small part of that compared to the inability of Europe to share resources and to coordinate uh, uh, medical response. It's, it's pretty unbelievable. All right, Mike. I think uh, we've, we've uh, taken up a lot of your time tonight. Um, I'm really grateful. And uh, um, it was so interesting and useful to uh, have this teach-in with Mike Davis. Um, I'm, I think we're going to wrap up now. Let me uh, just mention a few pieces of final housekeeping. Um, one is that I hope folks will check out Mike's book, uh, Set the Night on Fire, LA in the 60s, which is forthcoming from Verso Books, and pre-order that. We have a, a special sale on this book, 40% off at the Verso Books website. Uh, so please look for Set the Night on Fire. And over at the Haymarket uh, Books website, a uh, couple of Mike's excellent books uh, are on sale there for a 30% discount. Uh, there's In Praise of Barbarians, Essays Against Empire collection. That's really interesting. And this very important book called No One is Illegal. 
Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.